Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. This is Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney, the two of us continuing our quest to become universally recognized as the Gapotes, the greatest podcasters of all time. I don't know if we're going to make any progress toward that goal today. But safe to say, Eric, Teresa Shields did her campaign to be lauded as the quote, no harm at all on Saturday night. Yeah, but, but the the quote conversation is definitely secondary to the gapote conversation. Uh, although I, I wish podcasters started with a different letter. The that that G really combo, yeah, it doesn't doesn't quite roll off the tongue. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I'm thinking I might get us some gapote warm up jackets. You know, with with okay. gapote in gold lettering on the chest, just like that uh, that sharp jacket Clarissa was wearing at the weigh in. Um, you know, I figure if if we say it out loud and then we wear it out loud, it might come true. All right. I mean, really, what challenges are there? Uh, Let's well, not get into that. <laughs> what challengers aren't there? <laughs> Considering everyone has a podcast at this point, and uh, some of them are good. Uh, so, you know, as long as we're in the Gapote conversation, you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm adjusting the lettering on our forthcoming sweat jackets to just indicate that we're in the Gapote conversation. That's all I, that's all I really want. Okay. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, as you said, uh, Clarissa Shields took a step toward possible quoteness on Saturday night, not just defeating Christina Hammer to become the undisputed women's middleweight champion, but doing so in a one-sided affair. Shields dominated Hammer. The scores were 98-92 across the board, and if anything, those scores could have been even wider. Yeah. Uh, the first round was close and fought in the style Hammer prefers, but then Shields upped the tempo in the second might have hurt Hammer with one of the right hands she landed that round. Definitely hurt her in the eighth. Uh, she knocked out Hammer's mouthpiece and, and made it start to look like a stoppage was coming. It went, frankly, just as Clarissa told us at Friday's weigh-in that yeah. it would. Uh, that she had the speed and skill to beat Hammer in either a boxing match or a fight. Uh, and, Kieran, you and I didn't exactly doubt her. We both picked Shields to win a decision. But we didn't expect her to dominate like that. In our little picks competition, uh, you got three points by correctly saying it would be a unanimous decision. I stumbled a bit by saying split decision for only two points. Uh, so you were certainly... <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're really closing the gap on me. Uh, but you were certainly closer here than, than I was in terms of our predictions for this fight. But neither of us quite saw this coming. What do you think was the key to Shields not just winning, but winning so emphatically? Well, I think, you know, part of it the the evidence here this is one case where some of the evidence is really in the punch stats so shields landed 112 of 387 overall and 94 of 212 power shots which is a 44 percent power connect percentage but so that's pretty good but the really telling stat to me is that hammer not only did she land just 49 of 366 but 25 of 230 jabs just 11 percent of her jabs and that, of course, is a key weapon. Uh, that's what we talked about all the way through um, uh, Christina Hammer's jab. Uh, and we knew that Clarissa Shields knew that, and she, and she neutralized it. And the best way I think that she did that was through her defense. I think we saw this a, a little bit, certainly against Femke Hermans, uh, really since she's been with, with John David somewhat, slipping punches really well, uh, and then putting her in a position to be able to counter Christina's jabs with jabs of her own. She was doubling and tripling up with her own jabs sometimes, uh, and then also following up with right hands over the top. So I think everything kind of came 
off of her defense and her counterpunching. And, and she was really measured in her offense. I, one of the things we talked about was um, how she would be able to control her emotion, um, that she sort of needed to have that emotion, but to be able to, to harness it rather than let it take control of her. And, and I thought she did that really well. Um, you know, Hammer in the buildup, uh, focused on Clarissa's fight with Hannah Gabriel, so, sort of used it as a way of saying, highlighting her weaknesses. Oh, she can be knocked down. She can be, she can be hit. But that was probably the least structured, sort of least controlled outing of Shields' professional career. And, and, and this time, you know, this was quite the opposite. Probably the most controlled, most structured, most finessed one of, of her career. She dialed her offense back, and I thought that made it that much more effective as a result. And and, and that's what she did really well, I think. But Sort of running against that, um, we all, as I said, we all knew that Hammer had a good solid jab. As Shields acknowledged that match that much, even after the fight. But were you surprised that she had basically nothing else at all, Christina Hammer? That once Shields had removed her plan A and neutralized that jab, it was as if Christina hadn't even planned on having a plan B. She didn't seem to have any secondary uh, plan at all. No, she she certainly didn't, and. I wasn't totally surprised by that because watching her in, in all of her fights before this, she was mostly a predictable, straight-up European-style right. fighter. And as I noted before the fight, I, I haven't seen much of her dealing with punches coming back at her. Um, so, you know, not that that proves she can't handle it when the punches are coming back to her, but I might have guessed that she would only have one gear what I didn't guess was that Shields would render that gear so ineffective as you just right. laid out why. Um, you know, H Hammer landed the jab here and there. Um, I thought she had a, a decent third round. I actually gave yep. her the third, but not the first. Uh, it seemed like more people gave her the first, but not the third. But those were pretty much the two rounds that you could consider giving her. Um, for the most part, though, the jab wasn't landing clean. It, it wasn't bothering Clarissa much. And Clarissa was, was jabbing with her, double jabbing, triple jabbing, quadruple jabbing even. Uh, Hammer was barely winning the battle of the jab, as the stats that, that you cited bear out. And if she wasn't going to dominate that battle, then we figured she'd be in trouble. Mm. Shields was so good, so focused, so intense. Hammer really needed a plan B. I don't know if she'll have one in her career going forward, but I think it was just a case where up until this point, plan A had worked well enough for her that there was no plan B coming mm. in. So, yeah, people assumed Hammer would have the, the jabbing edge and the boxing edge. It didn't turn out that way. One area we weren't sure who would have the edge was power. This was a topic of conversation going in. We discussed it on the weigh-in show. We looked at the two fighters' KO ratios. Hammer had 11 knockouts out of 24 fights, whereas Shields had just two in eight fights. Despite that, some argued beforehand that Shields actually had the better punching power. Based on what we saw, would you agree that, that Shields' power might be understated by her low knockout percentage? I think this really highlighted, and the eighth round in particular really highlighted, something that I said in the preview, and, and we may have addressed when we talked about this on the way-in show. Um, I think Clarissa Shields really suffers from being forced to fight two-minute rounds. Yeah. I really, really do. Um, because it isn't so much that she has one-punch concussive power, but she has these hard combinations that stun her opponent and, and, and are cumulative. And repeatedly now we've seen that just as she's at the point of maybe being able to get her opponent out of there or at least put her down and put her in some kind of trouble, the bell rings. Um, you know, with the exception of 
what we've talked about before, the very odd ending of that Anne Sophie Mathis fight. I, I don't believe that Christina Hammer has even been particularly wobbled noticeably, but she was clearly reeling at times um, during this this bout. So yeah, I, I do. I do think that that KO percentage uh, probably does undersell Clarissa's power. And I do think if we saw three minute rounds in women's boxing, um, you know, we'd, we'd probably see her do a lot better in that respect. Uh, yeah, in in this fight in particular, the you look at that eighth round. Add a, yeah. add a minute to that round. Exactly, <laughs> it's very right? questionable whether Hammer gets out of that round. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, a couple of things stood out between the rounds as well as what happened in the rounds. One was Showtime using Tom Loeffler as the translator for Hammer's Corner. I think that's probably the first time a promoter's done double time uh, for that um, and, and done, done the, uh, the old translating in the corner bit. Um, <laughs> the other thing that I thought was really interesting, I actually thought was more interesting, was the uh, relationship between Shields and John David Jackson. It was really interesting to see the way they interacted. And, and, and Barry and, and Steve and Raul talked about this too. Um, you mentioned during our preview podcast that you felt Shields has improved considerably since Jackson's been in our corner. Um, to me, I thought watching the way that they interacted really drove home what a great relationship they seem to have, Eric. Yeah, we don't know what goes on in camp behind closed doors, you right. know, who, who's responsible for what parts of her development. But it sure seems like Jackson is great for Shields. Uh, she, she's throwing combinations better than ever. She can come forward or she can counter. She was always good, but now she's really becoming a complete fighter. And they do seem to have a good relationship. Uh, the thing in particular that Barry Tompkins pointed out that I thought it was really funny at one point to see her doing more talking in the corner <laughs> than, than he was. Um, so, yeah, she's only 24 and she's getting better every fight. Uh, how much of that is Jackson? I can't say for sure, but he has something to do with it. Um, and if she keeps improving like this, that's just really scary for any mm-hmm. other female fighters around her weight. Um, and speaking of her improving and her future potential and how far this can all go, last week I asked you whether you thought Shields could be for women's boxing what Ronda Rousey was for women's MMA. One week later... What do you think now? So I've revised my opinion a little bit. I was a bit dubious about it when you asked me beforehand, you know, saying, well, there's all these differences. Ronda would score these spectacular stoppage wins and and she had this kind of heel personality. But I've got to say, taking a step back and just watching everything that's, that's, that's happened over the last several weeks, I've been really, really impressed by Clarissa Shields, like all the way through this promotion. Um you know, to adopt the, the language of, of, of Ronda's present profession, as I said, Ronda was always more of a natural heel, mm-hmm. even when she wasn't even trying to be. But uh, I've been surprised and impressed by Shield's ability to be to be a really good face, actually. Um, she really threads the needle in a way that very few fighters can do, in that she's outspoken, she talks flat trash. I mean, boy, she, she really talks smack. Um, is confident to the point of and maybe even past the point of being arrogant. I mean, she's just furious with anyone who dares suggest that they can beat her or that anyone can beat her. She doesn't just take offense at it. She's really mad at it. Um, but she's able to do that, I think, in a really likable way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she comes across incredibly well. Um, this was really the first time, I think, that the spotlight has been on her in an ex- for an extended period at once i mean obviously with the olympics and with her pro debut and all of that it's been on her but this was like a concentrated spell uh, she really had to like sell a fight for a long time and i think she's really thrived in it and then you add to that the way that she fought on saturday night i think the best fight that she's 
she's done, oh, yeah. and as you said, if she continues to fight like that, then I think she's really an amazing package, potentially. Um, she could really shoulder the, the weight of women's boxing, certainly in this, in this country, and assuming we, she's able to still get some good matchups, uh, really carry it forward. So um, I was kind of a yes, possibly beforehand, but thinking about it, looking at her, looking how well she carried this and how well she fought, yeah, I, I think so. I'm... I'm she could really be a, a tremendous uh, presence and, and benefit for women's boxing. Yeah, I mean, it's still going to be really hard to duplicate quite what Ronda Rousey did sure. uh, with, with Claressa's fighting style, not not quite being that same sort of in-your-face, knock-everybody-out or make-them-submit. Obviously, we don't do that in boxing uh, quite, quite as much, but, you know, it, that sort of approach is, is hard to duplicate. But I, I think you hit upon the key thing is... Uh, that she can really sell it the way that she talks, whether people find it charming as you and I both seem to, or whether it turns them off. Either way, she, by being outspoken and outgoing and talking a lot, she's going to help get herself attention and keep making a name for herself. And I think that's a, a huge part of, of this battle to become the star that carries women's boxing. So one of the things, obviously, that's very important to her was not just proving that she would win this fight, not just proving that she would win decisively, but one of the things that she was shouting about, I am the quote. Don't deny me that. I am the quote. She, she was, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Simple question for you, Eric. No pressure here whatsoever. <laughs> not feeling is, any pressure. Is Clarissa Shields the quote? Ah, yes. Nice, easy, simple question. Uh, one way to answer it that's kind of easy is that she's at least on a trajectory to be the yeah. quote. Uh, that, that's not a hot take to, to say that she's on her way. Um, that's not what you asked. Is she already the quote? If her career ended today, does she have the title? Boy, it's close. Uh, it is, actually. Le Layla Ali was excellent. Lucia Riker was excellent. Ann Wolf was excellent. None of them had a win as meaningful as this one. Um I guess based on Shields' pro career only, I would say no. Not nine fights is too soon. But who says we have to base it only on her pro career? Mm. You know, your, your amateur accomplishments can be part of being the GOAT. So when you consider she has two gold medals and she just won the most meaningful fight in professional women's boxing history, sure. What the hell? Clarissa Shields <laughs> is the GOAT. Yeah. Um, and, and whether you agree with that or not, the fact is, she's at least close enough to quoteness uh, coming off this win that it almost feels like there aren't too many other m mountains to climb right now, which is going to make things a little tricky. What would you like to see her do next, Kieran? So I had never heard until extremely recently of Savannah Marshall. Right. But now I really like the idea of Shields fighting Savannah Marshall. Um, I really love... The notion that in pursuit of her quoteness, she should go and erase the one stain on her record. Savannah Marshall being the one person who beat her in the amateurs right before the 2012 games, I think it was. Um, and then she's in a place where she's like, I have defeated every single person I've ever faced. Uh, mm -hmm. I love that idea. And for her then to go on and say and face Cecilia Bracus. Um Or if it were the other way around, that would be fine too. Um I'm really interested that she seems ready to go all the way down to 154 for a breakers fight, given that she has fought at 168. Mm -hmm. um, I would hope that doing that wouldn't take too much out of her. I'd almost rather it were at some kind of a catch weight to 
you know, not, not negate perhaps some of her advantages. But at the same time, she and her team have talked quite a bit about doing a Lomachenko and trying to win world titles in three weight classes within a certain uh, period of time. So, mm. I mean, if she were able to do that, I mean, going down to 54 and facing and say beating breakers, there you go. There's your quote, right? End of discussion, probably. Right. Um, uh, so, yeah, either of those. But I would, I'm also really intrigued by the idea of her going to the UK and, and fighting Savannah Marshall. Yeah, and and the only other name that I would throw out there, and this is probably completely unrealistic, but it would be a hell of an event if she could lure Layla Ali out of retirement. Oh my goodness! Um, but you know, that's that's the mega super enormous fight that even blows uh, Layla Ali versus Christy Martin out <laughs> of the water from an event perspective. But it's probably unrealistic. Layla Ali has uh, been been requi- retired for quite a while now and seems perfectly content in her <laughs> non-boxing life. Yeah. All right. Uh, there are a couple of other fights on the card as well. Of course, in the co-main heavyweight prospect, Jermaine Franklin remained undefeated with a unanimous points win over a comebacking veteran, Rydell Booker. Uh, Booker, whose only previous defeat was against James Tony back in 2004, didn't dispute the decision, but seemed singularly unimpressed with Franklin. Uh, he needs a lot of work, he said. What did you think? Yeah, you know, th- this was my thought on both Franklin and Otto Wallen, who we'll talk about uh, after watching what was available on YouTube uh, over the last few days leading up to this, that there are some tools there, but neither one jumps off the screen as an elite prospect. Certainly Franklin didn't look like the next big thing here, even as he won and won convincingly. It seemed like he mostly won because he was younger and in better shape, um, you know, through three rounds. Booker was doing just fine. I actually had him up two to one, but then Franklin picked up the pace and the old man couldn't keep up and probably didn't win another round the rest of the way. You know, some some fat old guys like George Foreman are in better shape than it <laughs> appears they are. Some are in exactly the shape it appears they are. <laughs> you know, the first few rounds of this fight were fun, and this could have been a, a heck of a fun four round or six round fight. Um, if, if they'd been pacing themselves accordingly for a fight of that length. As a 10-rounder, though, with both of them really sort of needing to slow it down at times, it wasn't a great fight to watch, especially, again, the sort of in the second half. Um, if you looked at the CompuBox stats afterward, the connect percentages on both jabs and power shots were almost identical, uh, but Franklin was throwing more. So it basically just winning on volume and energy. Uh, so anyway, I, I agree with Booker. He, he, he needs a lot of work. Uh, but at least we got to see 10 rounds of him in action and make an assessment. Not the case with the aforementioned Otto Wallen of Sweden in the opener. His heavyweight bout with Baltimore's Nick Kisner proved unsatisfying for everyone as a clash of heads caused it to be called off after the first round and declared a no contest. Uh, it's not a win. It's not a loss. It's basically a tie. But uh, you know what they say. You can't spell kissing your sister without Kisner. It's true. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I actually, I, th- I think the full last name was Kissing Your Sister, but when his great grandparents came over, right. they condensed it at Ellis Island to kiss her. Exactly. I think that's what happened. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Valen won the first three minutes of the fight pretty easily, but that was all the fight that there was. Uh, Kissner said he he couldn't see after they clashed heads, and that was that. And somewhat remarkably, it was not the only televised bout to end that way on Saturday night. Uh, over on DAZN, it happened in the second round to Diego De La Hoya and Enrique Bernache, and that was a nasty cut in that mm. one. 
uh, and on FS1 uh, sometime in the wee hours of the morning after my DVR cut off, even with a one-hour <laughs> time extension. Uh, former Showtime Boxing Podcast guest Caleb Truax saw his bout with Peter Quillen halted after two as a result of a gash above Truax's right eye. Kind of weird that we had three of those in one night. Seriously, it has to be so deflating, doesn't it, for everyone involved when that happens. Imagine you're, you're in camp for so long, you're putting yourself through so much, uh, and you're, you know, you're hyped up for your fight, you work so hard, and then that happens. Um, I mean, with the Truax one, you could just see his shoulder slump the moment it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was, you know, even though he said, hey, I could still see out of my left eye, I could have fought on, fought on. He, he knew, he must have known at that instant. Because, um, of course... You know, head clashes were such a big part of his fights with James DeGale, is, of course, as well, especially that rematch. And you could, yeah, you could just see it in him. And, and tougher Quillen, too, who's really running out of time to reestablish himself. It's just, it's really got to be the, the worst of all possible worlds for just about everybody going, going in there um, when that happens. Uh, so also on that FS1 card, uh, Sergei Derevyanchenko scored a unanimous, but perhaps closer than predicted win. Uh, over Jack Colke. And on that DAZN card that you mentioned, uh, which came from Monterey, Mexico, Jaime Munguia may have gotten away with one against Australia's Dennis Hogan. Uh, one judge had it 114-114. The others had it 115-113 and 116-112 in Munguia's favor. It's a result that did not sit very well with the DAZN announced crew. A lot of folks watching at home. What did you think, Eric? No, it did not sit well with them. Uh... I didn't score the fight round by round myself, so I'm not going to express a a real opinion on whether Hogan got robbed, but I think we need to take a second and wonder if we were way wrong in getting as excited as we did about Munguia last year. You know, is he one of those guys who blew the doors off in his first big opportunity, looked like a beast against Saddam Ali, but really he has just the one gear and maybe he's not such a special talent. Whether he did or didn't deserve to beat Dennis Hogan, uh, and and no re- disrespect to, to Hogan, who fought well. Uh, Dennis Amania was indeed running wild, brother. But uh, <laughs> if if Mungi is a blue chipper, he probably doesn't struggle that yeah. much with a, a guy like Hogan. Uh, it's starting to look like the Ali fight flattered to deceive, and Mungia needs the perfect style or the perfectly overmatched opponent in front of him to look good. So I'm not saying exit the bandwagon and uh, drop a lit match on the way out and burn the bandwagon to the ground and nothing like that. But I think it would be a good idea to uh, get a bandwagon exit strategy in order at the very least. Yeah. And and I, you know, that's a couple of fights in a row that he hasn't looked great. And he's talking about, he's a big lad and he's talking about it maybe being difficult to make 154 and he might have to go up to 160. And there, I think that's when he loses the advantages that he's had to this point, right? Because he's had that power and, you know, uh, Liam Smith was doing a good job of outboxing him for a while, but he just couldn't cope with that power. And up at 160, is that going to be a factor so much? So yeah, I don't know. It was, it's been fun, but yeah, um, uh, uh, I might be looking to hop off. Okay. (laughs) Um, the other big fight of the weekend, of course, was in Los Angeles for on Friday night. Vasily Lomachenko positively destroyed Anthony Crawler, beating him up, knocking him out in the fourth round to retain his lightweight championship. Um, Eric, you're the one with the we may be past peak Loma hot take. Uh, did anything we see on Friday cause you to revise that opinion at all? Yeah, I think it could use a little revising, maybe. Um, I know it's just Anthony Crawler, but Loma looked pretty damn peak and prime on Friday. I wonder if needing his shoulder repaired was a a bigger Mm. deal than I realized um, was holding him back a little. 
uh, in his in his last couple fights before this. Whatever the case, it was a damn near flawless performance. Uh, my new hot take is that I might just suck at hot takes. Um, <laughs> and that's probably not a hot take, actually, now that I think about it. Um, at least based on this fight alone, there's no reason to think Lomachenko has begun to exit his prime. Uh, he looked to me like the best pound-for-pound fighter in the world, uh, as you and I have felt for the last year or two that he is. Uh, and that, of course, is a central topic of conversation when you're facing an <laughs> opponent who isn't really worth your time, who you're a 100-to-1 favorite to beat. People need to talk about something. So there was a lot of pound-for-pound talk after the fight. Uh, but I found it a little surprising that the ESPN broadcast crew was unanimous in feeling Lomachenko is number two behind Terrence Crawford. Uh, on the last pound-for-pound poll on ESPN.com, where they survey 10 people, and full disclosure, I'm one of them, uh, nine out of 10 had Lomachenko first and Crawford second. Uh, but uh, on, on the broadcast, Max Kellerman, Andre Ward, Tim Bradley, and Mark Kriegel all went for Crawford. I should note, it seemed to me like Kriegel was kind of noncommittal, and it was just like he, he just didn't want to disagree with everybody else. There might have been some peer pressure or, or some groupthink going on there. Uh, and also, Tim Bradley is friends with Bud Crawford, so maybe that's affected right. his pick. Um, I don't know. Uh, what, what do you think of this uh, rather oddly timed backlash to the notion of Lomachenko as pound for pound king, you know, coming right on the heels of a, a perfect performance and a, and a spectacular fourth round knockout? It's strange. There's been there's been this kind of resistance, I think, at, at times to, to Lomachenko. There's, there's always been this sort of, oh, well, so-and-so will beat him. And then Lomo goes and beats him. Oh, well, yeah, but then so-and-so will beat him. It's a strange kind of pushback. It's as if I think there's this strange resentment at this guy who's come this far with 14 fights mm. getting that kind of praise. Uh, Devin Alexander the welterweight contender, was roasted on Twitter this weekend um, for sort of making the claim that he can't be pound for pound number one, that Lomachenko can't be pound for pound number one because he hasn't fought anybody. Um, uh, but And you hear that sometimes. And But honestly, I don't know who out of the claimants to pound for pound supremacy has a demonstrably better resume than Lomachenko, with the exception of Canelo Alvarez, right, um, right. who's as exceptional. Uh, you could pick holes in just about everybody else. Um, Agree. I mean, I mean, titles are a much devalued commodity in this multi-belt age, but of his 14 pro opponents so far, seven were at the time, had been, or would go on to be world title holders. Uh, Gary Russell Jr. was highly touted and undefeated when he faced Lomachenko, and Lomachenko dominated him in his third fight, mm-hmm. and that's still the only loss that, that Russell's had. Guillermo Rigondo, oh my God, how many Rigondo cultists were there out there? Absolutely convinced that he was the man and he was going to undress Lomachenko and then put in a pitiable performance against him. Lomachenko absolutely dominated him. And we don't hear from the, the Rigondo cultists anymore. I mean, God, we should make Lomachenko number one pound for pound in perpetuity just for ridding us of those people, for God's sake. <laughs> um, you know, and anything about Nicholas Walters. He's a guy who was undefeated. He was a, kind of considered a bit of a monster. Mm-hmm. Lomachenko made him quit and we haven't seen him since. So... Uh, for me, it's look, I'm a bit of a Lomachenko cultist, frankly, and have been for a while. I, I'll admit to that. Um, you know, it, it, to me, I think it isn't just as you and I have talked about before. It's not even just the records of his opposition. It's it's the way he beats them, the way he op- dominates them, the way he embarrasses them. It's the eye test. You know, he does things to his opponents that other opponents you know, haven't, haven't done to them. The, the possible exception being his previous two fights, Linares and Pedraza. But as we just mentioned you know in hindsight 
how you know when you're when you're uh, relying on your on your hook a lot and that shoulder just isn't functioning properly mm-hmm. you know that, that you know maybe that's an interesting thing and so if the shoulder injury is honestly a legit explanation for his slight dip in right. his last two fights then we'll see how legit it is when he next faces a more testing challenger i suppose a more testing challenger than anthony crawler yeah i and so you you mentioned you were running down basically the biggest names and, and best guys that he's fought, and I was wondering is is he even going to mention Lenaris, and then and then you worked him in. But yeah, like you look at between Lenaris, Walters, Rigando, and Russell, I think you could you could make a case that all four of them are are better than Terence Crawford's best win right now, or or at least even with or better than Crawford's best win. So, uh, and that's not to knock Crawford. It's no, just I the, love the, Terence Crawford. Right, right. But just the this sort of knocking of Lomachenko's quality of opposition, I, I don't see it. His quality of opposition, I think, is, is right up there with anyone, that, like you said, other than Canelo, anyone who's in the pound-for-pound pound discussion, there aren't really any that have, in only 14 fights, as many... First rate names as Lomachenko has racked up. But, you know, while we're talking about Lomachenko's quality of opposition, what do you make of Bob Arum's statement post fight that he wants Lomachenko to fight Mikey Garcia next and Teofimo Lopez in early 2020? Well, I love it, of course, <laughs> if, it, if it happens, but right. I'm not at all. I'm still not certain that Arum would really give Garcia that payday. I mean, there's still a lot of hate there. Um, you know, from Garcia just sitting out the last, whatever it was, two and a half years of, of his contract with top rank. And Bob, Bob can be petty and spiteful. It is, as they say, a feature, not a bug of his personality. <laughs> um, that man holds grudges. So if he makes that fight, it's because he's convinced that A, his man wins, and B, it earns him enough money that he can afford to not be too sore about it also earning Mikey Garcia money. Right. Um, so we'll see. I mean, that's... That, I mean, that would be a fantastic fight to see, even after, you know, Garcia losing to Errol Spence. If you went back down to lightweight for that contest, and that would be well, I, I would make Lomachenko a, a comfortable favorite in that, but a great fight for, to see. But the really intriguing one, it would be Toyofimo Lopez. He's, the, for me personally, he's the first guy to come along since Lomachenko who's made me think that he's doing something completely different to everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just, he's, he does seem to me, and obviously we still need to see him against much tougher tests, but he does seem to be the next in line in terms of otherworldly talent. Um, whether he'd be ready for Lomachenko in a year or, or whenever Bob's talking about is another matter, of course. I mean, he's coming along really fast, but Lomachenko is still Lomachenko. Um, but if he is, that to me... If we had Lomachenko still at this kind of level against a, a presumably improved and experienced Teofimo Lopez, it sort of has a feel of that. That could be, you know, one of those great generationally defining fights between two what appear to be almost supernatural talents there. Yeah, and it's a bizarre sort of quirk of timing that, you know, normally with the younger guy like Lopez, you'd say, ah, what's the rush? Give it a year, two years, three years, wait until the, the timing is just right. But because of the weight situation of Lopez saying he's going to have to move up soon mm. uh, and Lomachenko doesn't want to go above a certain level, that's why they seem to be in sort of a hurry to, to make it happen sooner rather than later. Yeah, yeah. Um, one other thing from that fight. So as Crawler lay there on the canvas out of sorts and, you know, obviously completely out of it and, and in quite some distress, uh, we were treated to the ref's eye view, courtesy of Jack Reese's bow tie camera. Um, personally, I 
faith made me feel uncomfortable. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, I, I love the idea of like trying new things. It's good for viewers to, to, to see what it's actually like in there and to really understand the reality of the sport. Like this isn't this isn't a you know a comic book. This isn't this isn't a, a game. Right. This is a guy. People get very very badly hurt. You, you, you just turned into Triple G for a moment there. This is not game. <laughs> this is not this is not game. This is box. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but it kind of felt invasive to me at that moment. Um, am I being oversensitive here? What did you think? Yeah, sound the alarm. I think we have a Raskin Mulvaney disagreement because because uh, yeah. I, I really liked it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now, and I get where you're coming from, but I just thought it was a cool shot that you know the the director realized. Oh, we have this really unique angle. The fighter is pretty much in frame on the bow tie cam. Let's stay with it. So it basically just from a cinematography perspective, uh, <laughs> I, I liked it. Um, now, you know, I'm sure if I was Anthony Carolla's family or friends, I would have liked it less. And you, you're not wrong to feel uncomfortable. Um, I guess I would just say to a certain extent, that's boxing. Uh, if you yeah. if, if you think too hard about what you're watching, it's easy to feel <laughs> uncomfortable. And I guess I guess this shot forced you to think about what you were watching in a way per, that you prefer to push back in your mind a bit. Yes, yes. <laughs> Especially when it then reminds me that I earn money from people being rendered into that kind of state. So yeah. yes, yeah. Now you're forcing me to think that way, and this this whole thing. We should move on. Apart. We should. Uh, one one last note on this past weekend's fights on the undercard of that. ESPN Plus show. I'm not sure how much more uplifting this topic is going to be, but uh, junior welterweight Jose Barboza Jr. remained unbeaten as he dropped and stopped veteran Mike Alvarado in three rounds. Kieran, is it time for Alvarado to call it a day? Oh, God, yes, isn't it? I mean, look, at some point, somebody has to step up and start protecting some of these people from themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Alvarado was done years ago, and he looked terrible in the in the final fight against Brandon Rios and and against Juan Manuel Marquez. Um, and Rios himself looked pretty dire the other week. Um, Ricardo Mayorga, for God's sake, who's giving him a license? He was knocked out by a guy making his pro debut uh, right. uh, the other week as well. I, I understand that it is very hard for some of these guys to to give up the fight. Um, but, that, you know, I mean, at some point, we have to stop enabling them a little bit. These people are going to get – it's their choice, absolutely. I understand that. But it's also our choice as to whether we, we enable them. So Yeah, and, yes. you, say, and, and you say it's, it's their choice if they can pass the physicals and, mm-hmm. and are cleared to fight. There are certainly cases where I think the physicals are not being conducted rigorously enough and weaker commissions are letting guys fight who maybe shouldn't. And I'm not trying to say specifically, oh, Alvarado is physically shouldn't have been cleared or or Mayorga shouldn't. You know, I don't know. I'm just saying that that that's probably part of it is that if the commissions were a little stricter about who's passing all the tests, uh, maybe they could take the decision out of the fighters hands. Yeah, indeed. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's look ahead. We've talked a bit already about Terence Crawford and coincidentally, um, the big fight this Saturday uh, features Crawford defending his welterweight championship against Amir Khan on ESPN pay per view. So let's get back to that pound for pound discussion. Uh, yep. If, as you and I, I think both feel, Lomachenko tightened his grip on that number one spot on Friday, is there anything that Crawford can do to like pry that grip off and maybe burnish his own? claim to the top spot on Saturday night. Yeah, you know, as we just said, some people certainly don't think Lomachenko tightened that grip. Uh, Some people, you know, a a minority, I believe, but still a decent percentage think already that Crawford is the best in the world right now. So um, for then, 
I, I guess he can slip, actually, by struggling against Khan. Mm-hmm. But, but obviously, there's no change to their pound-for-pound list if he wins comfortably. So the question is for people like us who have Lomachenko at number one, what can Crawford do to pass him? Or is there anything he can do to pass him? Is a first-round knockout of Amir Khan enough to change my mind? I would say it's possible. Um, even though I don't view Khan as a threat to win, uh, and even though we're talking about the the quality of opposition, I think Lomachenko's overall resume will still be a notch better than Crawford's, even if Bud adds Khan to it. If Crawford can look dynamite enough, I could see myself rethinking things, but it would have to be very one-sided. You know, he shows skill and power and gets Khan out of there faster than Canelo did without losing early rounds the way Canelo did. If Crawford can do that, I could see myself elevating Bud to number one. Uh, but it, in all likelihood, feels to me like my list isn't going to change until Crawford fights somebody better than this or Lomachenko slips up. Mm. Um, now, I, I may have just said that I feel Khan has little chance of winning, but uh, Khan, of course, has said that he thinks Crawford is very beatable. Do you see any particular strengths in Khan's armory or weaknesses in Crawford's that make you think Amir can indeed pull off the upset? I honestly don't. And it's weird because I don't hate the fight at all. Right. Uh, I, I think it's about as challenging and exciting a matchup as, as Crawford could really take right now, given the present siloing of the sport and and who he has to, to pick from in that sort of top rank ESPN side of the street. Right. But and I really like Amir Khan as a boxer. He's exciting. He's skilled. As we've said before, he's pretty much never in a boring fight. He, he he's, he's got an amazing heart to him, but he just isn't as good as Crawford. And I don't think even at his best, he wasn't as good as Crawford. Uh, look, you, I guess you, look, you can make the case, as is always the case with Amir, that his speed could pose a problem here and that generally... Whenever Crawford's experienced some level of discomfort, it's been against slick boxes with some hand speed. But the thing is, as good as he is, there have always been flaws in Khan's fundamentals. He's always tended to throw four punches and stay in range when three mm-hmm. would have been fine. Uh, and actually, his footwork has not always been that good. He's got fast hands, but occasionally oddly clumsy feet to go with them. Um, right. And he sometimes kind of just falls into his punches, doesn't he? When he's throwing them, it falls into range of his opponent. Um, you know, like when he was knocked out by Canelo, too much of the prevailing narrative in the immediate aftermath was that Canelo was just too big. And of course, that was a huge factor. But Khan was also committing some really fundamental errors technically and tactically. Uh, and, and Canelo walked him into the punch that he landed that ended up knocking him out. Um, and I fully expect Bud to do the same. Look, this is, again, not about knocking Amir Khan. This is about how highly I think of Terence Crawford and how good I think he is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Khan will give a good accounting of himself. He'll win some rounds, quite possibly. He'll force Crawford onto the back foot sometimes. But we all know how it's going to end, don't we? I think we do. Yeah. Um, and so, actually, so here's something. Given that, sort of like maybe the, the sort of flip side of the, of the question I asked you earlier, given that, Amir, perhaps perhaps unfairly, doesn't have the greatest of reputations among a large segment of the fan base. And specifically given his well-chronicled deficiencies of a chin nature, is this almost, you know, you, we talked about how Crawford can elevate himself, but actually, does this have the risk of being a bit of a can't-win proposition for Crawford? Uh, yeah, I think so, on a couple of levels. Um, you know, if he wins destructively, 
He won't get full credit because of that Khan right. Shin. Um, if he needs a bunch of rounds to figure Khan out, even though Khan is very good and most opponents need time to figure him out, that might hurt Crawford's stock a little. Uh, and then on a separate front, they're headlining a pay-per-view that you could see possibly not selling so well in mm. the U.S. And if that turns out to be the case, Crawford will hear criticism for that too, uh, that he isn't an attraction anywhere but Omaha. So if he wins... He's getting a big name on his record. He's scoring a quality win over a quality veteran fighter. But the risk to his reputation is, is significant here. Yeah, good point. Uh, now, Crawford Khan is clearly the main event of the boxing schedule for this coming weekend. But there are a few other fights of note. Uh, on that ESPN pay-per-view undercard, uh, the aforementioned Teofimo Lopez is fighting, as are Shakur Stevenson and Felix Verdejo. They're all in action in, in potential prospect showcase-type fights. On Fox, uh, maybe threatening to do a tiny bit of damage to the pay-per-view buy rate, uh, we have Danny Garcia versus Adrian Granados and Andy Ruiz versus Alexander Dimitrenko. And on DAZN from London, a few recognizable heavyweights are in action. It's David the White Rhino Allen versus Lucas Brown and Derek Chisora versus Sanad Gashi. Anything stand out to you among all those fights? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm interested in all the rest of the ESPN card. Um, you know, as you mentioned, we've already discussed Tiafimo Lopez. I, I do think he's a really special talent. Uh, I did have very high hopes of Felix Verdejo. Uh, until, by all accounts, he stopped taking his profession terribly seriously, which is why right. he started going backward. It'll be very interesting to see if he can get back uh, on the straight and narrow, uh, which is very much the case for Shakur Stevenson, too, who's been making as many headlines for himself with his behavior outside of the ring as for his talent inside it. Uh, so we hope he can harness that talent um, and save it for inside the ring. Uh, I'm somewhat interested in the in the Fox card, uh, Garcia Granados in particular. That's a good, solid tough opponent for Danny uh, and I'll watch the DAZN card if I'm bored <laughs> or somebody pays me okay don't, don't, uh, don't count on the latter yeah exactly well live in hope live in hope <laughs> um, alright that'll do it for this week's Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney we hope you enjoyed all the content that we and others provided for Shields Hammer uh, over the last couple of weeks we're biased of course I think the whole team really went above and beyond over these last few weeks uh, with the days and camps videos the all access and various other digital pieces uh, and I know you and I were really happy to be a good part of it so um, congratulations again to Clarissa Shields for justifying all the hype uh, with a tremendous performance. We will be back next week to review the Crawford Khan bout, among others, and to look ahead to a big weekend of fights on April 27th, headlined by Showtime Championship Boxing from Las Vegas, featuring Robert Easter Jr. against Francis Bartholomew. All that will be next week. Until then, thanks for listening.